Welcome, welcome, welcome to Kesed. My name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors I'm going to be sharing with you today. Uh, if you're a guest, thanks for coming to church. Uh, let's just say it. Let's just say it. Church is weird, right? Church is. Church can be strange. Church can be different. Church can be uh, uncomfortable. And when done well, church can be really, really beautiful. And uh, I'm just so excited that. For those of you who are giving church a shot again, that you were willing to come and, and check it out. It's probably because it's, it's drizzly outside. That's why. It's probably not anything more than just you had nothing else to do in the sun. But I'll take it. I will take you any way that I can get you. Uh, we're in a series right now called Oaks from Ashes. And the entire series is, is really about church based in spiritual disciplines or something we call spiritual practices. Uh, we, we looked at over 2,000 years of church history and we talked about in this series the, the different things that have driven people to uh, connect with God, connect with each other, and uh, different things that have been principles and foundational in, uh, in growing in connection with our, uh, with our creator. And so this series has, has gone by really fast. There's, uh, I think, two or three more left, and I'm here for all of them, so uh, feel free to... Uh, to, if you've been watching online all summer, feel free to come back in and check us out. We'd love to see you. But uh, for those who are here, I'll be here with you, and we're going we're gonna to wrap this thing up over the next two or three weeks. Now, today is an interesting spiritual discipline to talk about because this is the first spiritual discipline that I did not want to preach on because I'm terrible at it. I tried to give it to Pastor Joe and Pastor Chris, um, but they were at camp. And uh, there was no way I, yeah, yeah, camp. We're going to do, do a camp update. We got a bunch of junior high and high schoolers from camp back this week, right, already? If you came from camp, yeah, good, good. Uh, it was an amazing time. I was up for one of the days, and it was beautiful. But that said, uh, the guys that normally share the pulpit with me were unable to, uh, to help me out. And so I got stuck <laughs> with the topic of journaling. I, I, don't, I don't do it. So I was like, I don't think I can preach this because I don't do it. And, and yet it was clearly in all the manuscripts and all the books, like, like I was like, can we find a version of a book that just doesn't have journaling and we'll just skip it all together? Because let's be honest, we don't do a lot of hand raising around here. How many people just with great confidence can just say boldly with your hands, I do not journal. Just raise your hands right now. Yes, yes. Like, like why, right? Like, I, I, I've been in full-time therapy for eight years. This is an odd start to a sermon, but I've already got two in the can, so we're just going to see where 11 o'clock goes. It's an odd start of the sermon, but, but I've been in therapy for eight years, and at the beginning of my therapy, uh, my therapist sat with me, and he's like, listen, journaling is a huge tool in discovering yourself and your inner thoughts and also seeing progression. And I was like, that sounds amazing. I'll never do it. And it's been eight years... It's been eight years, and just recently, he's like, how's your journaling going? And I'm going exactly like it went when we started eight years ago. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I like to verbally process. I don't want to write stuff down. I don't, uh, where does that stuff go? And who reads that stuff when you put that stuff on there? So all these things have been, have been kind of swirling in my mind, and yet, and yet, sometimes you gotta, you gotta preach stuff you don't practice, even if you admit it at the beginning. And I was like, well... It appears to be a really important tenet of Christianity, this idea of journaling. As a matter of fact, you could say that the Bible is really just a collection of people's journals about God, the Holy Spirit, what went on in the early church, and I don't know, about Jesus, and so forth. And it, of course, turned into Scripture. So I know it's important 
And I also know that, uh, that my heart was, was more open because I had to study it all week long and because I uh, was honest with you about, about the fact that I don't do a lot of it. And so I think today is, a, is an important foundational tool in one way in that I guarantee you out of these 12 uh, spiritual practices we're doing, there's going to be one that just hits you wrong. Like you're going to be like, I, I don't do that. I don't do it well, and when I do do it, it feels awkward and uncomfortable. I think if you can be honest about it and be authentic about it and still be willing to, to look into it, you might find, like I did this week, that there is still value for it in your life. And so if you've already hit one of those, uh, you are not alone. Today is mine. And for those of you who are right now journaling about the fact that the pastor of Kesed said he doesn't journal, good for you, right? Good for you. I'm glad you're so good at it. But for the rest of us... We're going to get into what the Holy Spirit wants to do with today and this hot mess of a message. So, I, as I said, I, I like this jumping off point. The Bible is a collection of people journaling on behalf of God's direction. I like this quote. The spiritual practice of journaling is a way to remember where God is working. And it's not just like, like just a, a human principle that, that helps us to understand Scripture. It is encouraged by God all the way back in the Old Testament through now until Revelation comes to pass. A few examples of God encouraging people to journal. Jeremiah 31 and 2 regarding the restoration of Israel and Judah. The word that came to Jeremiah the prophet from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. Hmm. Write it down, he says, because I got some stuff to say. And I'd like for people to hear it and be able to read it. Habakkuk 2.2, and the Lord answered me to the prophet. He said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. God said, when I give warnings, I need somebody to write that stuff down. I, I, it's good to give it to my prophets. It's better to give it to my people. And then in Revelation 21.5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, by the way, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it doesn't have value and power in your life. Journaling is, is an important part of how we got our scripture, and it's supposed to be an important part of how we process the information that God is revealing to us each. But journaling hasn't always looked like it does here in this text or even here in this room. As a matter of fact, most of history, the vast majority of people could not read or write. Not to mention for those who could, that writing was an expensive resource and taxing practice. This is because papyrus decays over time, meaning it constantly had to be rewritten. And pottery shards are expensive to keep, maintain, and write on. And yet in spite of all this, I want to show you how people deeply value the spiritual practice of journaling even still. We're going to take a story. It's a story that goes back to a time not unlike our own, when a nation was kind of just out searching for meaning amongst itself. And I don't know if you know this, but we live in a world that finds meaning in basically everything, in all kinds of beliefs and all kinds of cultures and all kinds of systems. And there is great beauty in all of it, but I wouldn't say that there is great meaning in everything. That there, there sometimes needs to be the ability to, to actually see from God's perspective how humanity is unfolding. And the only way to do that is to read his words. 
It says the nation of Israel is living in constant disobedience to God. They are, they are constantly trying to seek out their own way and their own wisdom and their own processes for how they want to live and who they want to be. And all of a sudden, God sends them a prophet, and his name is Samuel. Samuel comes to them, and he says to them, put away your wicked ways and false gods. Return to God and repent. Listen to the words that have come before you and see what your God will do. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5 is where we're going to start. Then Samuel said to the people who said, we're willing. He said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at this place, Mizpah, and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, openly confessing, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, heard this, it says that the people had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Verse 8, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to pray out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Just going to take just a tiny tangent real quick. I guarantee you, in the midst of talking about the power of God's word, the canon of scripture, the power of following in obedience, the, the, the beauty of a God who orates to his people how much he loves them, that something inside our hearts of flesh is repulsed by the fact that, uh, I just want to do what I want to do, and I want God to leave me alone. Just like I wanted to do when it came to journaling. I'm like, I just don't do that. That's just not how I am. That's just not who I am. And I think a lot of us relate to that. Maybe not on this, this spiritual practice, but just in a core way that you approach this world that you live in. You see the world, you watch the news, you read the magazines, you read the articles, you make judgment calls, and at the end of the day, everybody knows you know best, especially you about you. <laughs> I mean, nobody knows more about what I think than me. And nobody should listen to more of what I think than me. I am my own greatest audience. And I have thoughts about the, the way this world is ran and what could fix it. And when God shows up through his words, through the journaling of others, led by the Holy Spirit and says, hey, Danny, I think there might be some stuff about your worldview that's a little bit self-initiated, self-grandizing, and altogether selfish. Well, on the outside, I want to be like, of course, Lord, for I am a pastor of great discipline, and I receive your guidance in my life. But inside, the little Danny heart in me is like, bro, don't you know I have some time on this planet now? I am just at the point where I'm starting to get that refined silver that some of you are, 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 are showing so well. That's a big deal in my position. I don't know if you know that or not, but when I was like 35, I didn't have any, when I started planting this church, I was 31, and people thought I was a youth pastor and were like very bothered I didn't have enough gray hair in order to speak God's word. And I was like, some people in this room don't have any hair at all, so what does that mean about wisdom? <laughs> Some very offended people in the room right now. Listen, listen, this isn't about you. This isn't about you. This is, this is about the words of the Lord. 
People want to feel as if they know what they know and they don't want to be told really by each other for sure and definitely not by a God they have very little relationship with that there is something more to the workings of this world than just what I can see in my generation. These people are no different and they repent. They actually do it as, a, as a, like, a, like a nation. They come to a city and there's a prophet and he says, if you want what God wants, you got to set down your views. And they set down their views. And you know the first thing that happens? The enemies of the people of God show up to attack them. Because anybody in this room who's considering repenting, anybody in this room who's considering turning from their old ways, I can tell you the first thing that's going to show up to meet you at the door from, when you turn from your old ways is your old ways. That's like the first thing that rolls out. It's like, oh, wait, you're trying to leave us? No, no, no. No, no, no. Let us, let us come and gather back around into the wisdom of our own knowledge and the comfort of our own coping. And so we have to decide, are we going to stay where God is and listen to his words in spite of what shows up to get us when we repent? These people decided they would. And so even though the enemy shows up, even though the, the pressure is on, they say, no, we are not going to cease crying out to our God. And so at this time, there was no Holy Spirit interacting like there is now. And so what they had was a prophet. And they're like, no, intercede for us. Go forth for us. We are not fleeing before our enemies. Verse 9, so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. Verse 11. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as, be as below Bethkar. And the, the addiction was destroyed and the coping was destroyed. And the broken legacy was destroyed and the generational sin was destroyed and all of those beautiful things that all of us want to repent and are hoping that God will overcome, that the enemy shows up, that we still stay true to God and who he is and that God blows out of our lives is destroyed and suddenly there is celebration and campfires and prayer meetings and people are like, this is the life I always thought I was going to live. End of story, right? That's it. And we move on until the story gets a little less vague, a little more vague, a little less detailed, a little more awkward. Another little enemy sneaks in, and next thing you know, it's four or five years later, and we're exactly who we were always going to be. And somebody says, but didn't you go to that church thing that one time, and didn't there an enemy of God, and didn't God show up? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I remember something. That was, it was cool. It was cool, but you know. See, in this passage... What Samuel decides to do is make sure people never forget, like we're supposed to never forget when God shows up that way in our lives. And so the story doesn't end in verse 11. There's a verse 12. It says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. He says, Hold on, folks, before we go back home, before, before this loses any of its potency, let's just stop. And let's just hallmark this moment. Somebody grab that big rock. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give this, this rock a name. I'm going to call it Ebenezer. 
Now, this idea of Ebenezer, it's a Hebrew word, and it's two words. It's eber, meaning remember or help, as in remembering when God showed up and helped, and the simple word nezer, which is stone. So in Hebrew, Ebenezer literally means stone of help or stone of remembrance. Samuel wanted the people to remember not just for a few days, but for years, for decades, and for generations, how God had come to the rescue of his people when they humbled themselves before him. God was calling the people through this prompting in Samuel's heart to never forget that when they were vulnerable, with their enemies approaching, and they did not deserve God's rescue, having been chronically unfaithful, yet he shows up anyhow. I'm just wondering real quick, how many times in your life has God showed up in your story that, that, that in the right light, in the right situation, you know is really only him, but you haven't actually thought of it until like right now, for years as a matter of fact. You haven't thought of that situation where God showed up when you were chronically unfaithful and he all of a sudden delivers you in this way or reveals something powerful to you in this way. Where in your life have you not thought of it till right now? And could that be because you and I are no good at Ebenezer's? We're no good at hallmarking stuff. We're we're no good at stopping to say, I need to remember this place and this feeling of of total and and utter reliance upon God as he pours his grace and love on me. We don't do this stuff very often. Probably the closest thing to Ebenezering in my life is my tattoos. My tattoos are probably as close as I come to, uh, to hallmarking things. Some of you know this, uh, all my tattoos are trauma related. I was a cancer kid, I was an OHSU Dornbecker kid, and uh, when I went into therapy eight years ago, he asked about my tattoos, and I was like, yeah, bro, they're cool. And he was like, mm, feels like there's more. When'd you get your first one? Without even thinking about it, I was like, oh, I was three and a half. And he was like, I'm sorry, what? And I was like, oh yeah, I was three and a half. I woke up after they radiated me. I think they still do this, anybody who's had cancer treatment. And they tattoo you where they, where they radiate you. They're hallmarks of this is something that happened in this part of this person's body. And so for the rest of my world, I was trying to redeem that stuff that happened to me without my permission by drawing pictures all over my body. <laughs> it was a bum day when I figured out I didn't have to do that no more. I was like, well, shoot, these Ebenezers aren't that terrific any longer or helpful. See, sometimes we subconsciously remember things, we subconsciously mark things, but we don't do it consciously very often. Not like God is asking Samuel to remind the people here to commemorate it. The first biblical reference to consciously memorializing something God has done for people comes in Genesis 28, all the way back. When Jacob has that dream, do you remember the dream he had at Bethel? And at the end of the dream, he's sleeping on a huge rock, which I don't know why you're rock sleeping. I mean, there's got to be other places in the world at that time to sleep. But apparently, he was so exhausted that, that where he fell was upon this rock. And that rock afterwards became a pillar that he set up to remember the incredible dream that God bestowed upon him at that time. He wanted to commemorate it right then and right there. And Bethel which means house of God became an important center of worship because of the dream that was memorialized by the rock. He physically remembered what God had done. 
and so increased his faith and the faith of those who later worshipped there. Another one was in Joshua chapter 4 when they're, pro- they're uh, crossing into the promised land. And God clears the Jordan and it's dry. And as Joshua is leading them across, he sees stones and he knows that they're part of something special. Because now at this point there's a culture. A culture of making sure to, to mark the powerful things of God in a conscious and awakened way. And so as he's going across, he takes 12 stones and he sets them up. And these stones were to be appreciated not just by those people who crossed that day, but by future generations. Joshua himself says, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Just, just, just wondering, if we're really, really bad at memorializing the things of God, and yet we're trying to raise future generations to, to be just a little bit stronger than us, I think all of us would agree that if you were to go back three or four generations in our families, that, that the hope is that every generation has been a little more awakened and a little more uh, focused on health and a little more less uh, dysfunctional, hopefully, than the generation before them. That, that right now, the goal of most of you in this room isn't to raise more dysfunctional people, little people, than you. Like, I don't think that's anyone's goal as parents, to be like, you know what I want? Just a little bit more dysfunctional version of me. That's what I want. So my question becomes, if that's the case, could this be the key to how that's supposed to be happening? That we're supposed to be raising Ebenezer so that when our children one day look upon our lives and are like, hey, Dad, what is this about? And you're like, oh, let me pass this on to you so you can pass it on to your son, so you can pass it on to your daughter, and so on, and so on, and so on. See, we've just accepted that we don't do this anymore, and so guess what? We don't do it anymore. I have passed on conscious tattooing to my children. I don't know that that's a perfect way or example, but I already told you, I don't journal that well, so you know what, I'm just just doing it the best way I can. And now my children know what each of their tattoos actually mean. And yes, all three of them have them. Some large and quite colorful. (laughs) And I was like, listen, go with dark tones, because that stuff fades as you get older, but they just do what they want to do. The point of the story is they're not subconsciously tattooing, just like I believe we shouldn't subconsciously be letting certain situations become our Ebenezer's, we should be trying our very hardest to set them up in a way that our children can lay claim to them so that they can anchor to them, preferably in the Lord, and therefore their children's 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 children still talk about your great-great-grandfather one time had an encounter with God, and Grandma almost left him. But Grandpa repented. (laughs) This is some of your story right now, isn't it? We just got very real in here right now. We have a repenting grandfather in the house somewhere, and he's like, this is me. Maybe it's a repenting grandma. Maybe you have done that, and you've actually never told your adult children or grandchildren about it, about how they almost didn't exist. Because you almost blew out of the family just like your dad blew out of yours. Maybe we should talk about it just a little bit. 
Maybe we should own the reality that God wants us to journal these things in whatever ways make sense to us. Today, when we refer to setting up an Ebenezer, we are engaging in the timeless act of using something physical to remind us of a spiritual truth, especially the truth of God's faithfulness and his goodness. The purpose and meaning of Ebenezer's is still just as important today as it has ever been. Consider there's no difference between someone who sees constant evidence of God's work in their lives and someone who doesn't as it pertains to God, except for training. See, God is equally at work in both people's lives. The difference with the person who sees is that they have trained their eyes to see. And the way in which they see is often through reading the journal of the Lord and looking at the landscape of Ebenezer's around them to see how people before them saw God. When we don't engage in hallmarking the things of God in our life, we cease to train the generations after us. And so they have to become like many of us, people who take years and years and years to discover what it means to actually see a sign of God or read the words of God or engage with the spirit of God. And then what happens is because no one told us how to hallmark it, even though you might be 45 years old and going, hey, I think I love the Lord and I know some stuff. I have no tools on how to create an Ebenezer so that the generation after me doesn't have to make the same mistake I did and that you did. This is why this is so important. And not just this principle. It's important in all the principles, all the practices. Just because you're not good at it doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. Most likely, actually, what it means, I'm going to get real close to the edge of the stairs here because I want to be really serious and get as close to your eyes as I possibly can. It probably just means the generation before you didn't do it either. Some of you are like, yeah, I just don't pray. Well, that makes sense because neither did your mama. Well, you know, I just don't, I'm not very generous. Well, that totally makes sense because you're raised by one of the most selfish people you know. I can go on and on and on, but some of you are here with your grandparents and I don't want it to be that awkward. (laughs) But how beautiful is it if you're actually here with your grandparents? How beautiful is it if there's multiple generations sitting in the same church And maybe that's because they sat in church with their grandparents. Maybe that's because you do have a few Ebenezer's. You just were never told they were such a thing. I only journaled one time that I know of, and it was because my daughter made me. My daughter got married during COVID. My son and my daughter, both my oldest children, got married during COVID. Very very inexpensive weddings. I recommend it, just so you know. 30 plus, folks, 30 plus. That's all that we could do. And I was like, if this is what love requires, right? I was just, I was about it. But my daughter had this idea for a unity ceremony. She goes, Dad, I want you to write a letter to my future self. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, I want you just to pour out your heart on paper. I'm like, that's called journaling. She's like, just pour out your heart on paper, write a letter to my future self, and then I'm going to get one from mom, and then uh, her now husband is going to get one from each of his parents, and then we're going to put it in a nice little uh, box with a bottle of wine and the four letters, and we're going to nail it shut during the service, and that way if things ever just get so difficult, we're thinking about quitting, we're going to open those letters and drink that wine, and, and, and we're going to read them to each other. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is interesting. I was like, we're going to read the letters before or after the wine because that will determine how good <laughs> my letter is. 
I'm an after letter, I'm an after wine letter reader. That would be my recommendation to you, but, but I had to do it. <laughs> I had to do it. I had to do it. She asked me to do it. This was her only request on her wedding day. And so I, I sat down and I wrote her this entire letter to, to her future self. And it was magical. She still never read it. It's been like, you know, a couple years now. She's still never read it. I, my hope is, I guess, that she never has to read it. That maybe, at, you know, as on the day that I leave this, this planet, she's like, you know, I should read that letter from my dad. And my hope is that the words meet her right where she's at right then. That's what an Ebenezer looks like. So I guess I do journal now that I think about it. I guess I do. This is what we're called to do with our faith, to make it more than just what we're not good at. My good friend, Pastor Joe Barella, said, journaling is a physical reminder of documenting God's faithfulness in our lives. It trains our eyes to see God's working before us. So the question is, how in your life are you commemorating the moments in which God has worked before you? When has God taken you through the raging waters? When has he showed up when you were chronically unfaithful? When has he loved you when you knew that what you deserved instead was punishment? I was pondering this and I started thinking about uh, my life right now. I started thinking about what Taylor, uh, my daughter, had asked me to do and... um, and about how, how special it would be if I could have, uh, you know, a letter written from my dad to my future self, if I had thought about that and done that. Some of you know uh, that, that my father uh, died in uh, 2019 very unexpectedly, and that we had a, we had a close but strained relationship. Uh, my father was married to my mom uh, for 20 years, and then uh, there was a terrible explosion in our family. And then over the next 20 years before he passed away, my father was married 10 more times. It's a lot of times. Yeah, I, I, I joke, I bought him a cake when he beat Elizabeth Taylor's record. I was like, Dad, congratulations, you've done it. He thought it was funny. Don't, you can, it's all right, it's all right. Everybody's like, oh. Uh, listen, nobody gets married 11 times in total. It's like since the times of pharaohs, nobody's been doing that for a long, long time. When, my, uh, when, when I was thinking about this message, I was pondering what that would be like. And then, and this sounds cheesy because it sounds set up, but it's really not. Uh, my dad uh, didn't have a journal. That's not something that he did. But he did used to leave me notes, just random notes. And they were notes that, uh, that were not usually very long. And he would just leave them uh, around the house. And I, because I was fairly angry and didn't really care, usually just threw them in a drawer. And I realized I had one of these notes. And I was building this message and I was like, huh, I wonder what that said. This note was left for me uh, at a time when I had moved out of my mom's but didn't have a place to stay. My dad had an apartment, they were fully divorced and he said I could crash with him for just a little while. And while I was with him in his apartment, um, I started dating Aaron and her 19 month old son, Gabriel. And I had introduced him to them. And I woke up the next morning and there was a note on the counter and I was like, ah, another dad note. And I put it in a drawer somewhere and I left it. And that was 27 years ago. So I'm writing this message 
And I'm thinking about me now and what I would like to hear now and what I wish my dad would have been able to tell me now and how I wish he would have left me an Ebenezer journal note now. And I thought, maybe I should read it. But my dad was also kind of crass. And I thought, this could go badly. And so I got in my safe and I got in my my little file. And I have multiple versions or multiple notes, all different. And I pulled out (laughs) this note from my father. It starts off with the name, my given name, which I edited once I planted Kesed because it sounded awkward, which was Danny Joe. It's my father's name for me. This is what he said. I just wanted you to know how much I'm really enjoying having you live here. I know it's only temporary, but I will be loving every minute. I also am loving your new family, Aaron and Gabe. It makes me feel homey, and I miss that a lot. Anyway, I love you, son, and I am very proud of the man you are becoming. Always remember to honor and cherish Aaron and Gabe. Put them first above anyone, including mom or me. Only God should be first. Do that, and you'll keep them forever. Be careful. And have a great day, Dad. I thought it was profound that my father, 27 years ago, wrote a note for me that ended with, be careful. Be thoughtful and you'll keep them. A man who never kept anybody. A man who probably looked into the eyes of his angry son and realized that he was just like him. And that if he wasn't careful, he would lose the things he held most dear. And so my father from the grave (laughs) reached all the way into my life last week with what you could very easily call a journal entry and gave me an Ebenezer. Gave me a warning, gave me a blessing. Every person in this room right now, you may not be able to go back in time and find something that somebody wrote you, but you can write something to your future children, friends, spouse, even to your future self. You can pause where you are right now and think about all the stuff swirling around your life and all the ways that God is working with that stuff. You don't have to be perfectly obedient. You don't have to be overcoming. You don't have to be righteous in every way. You just have to be authentic with something you're not good at and maybe put some pen to paper and say, be careful, be thoughtful. And so I left little cards to show you how simple this is. And they can be little journal entries or like me, They can be uh, just simple words. Mine is the word father. This is my Ebenezer. I'm going to put this in my house somewhere. (laughs) Which is is so uncanny. I don't think you understand what it's like to think my father is an Ebenezer in my life. And yet I see the Holy Spirit showing up to redeem even that story so that I can be a 
maybe a different dad and a different husband than he was, encouraged by him and loved by my God. So I'm going to have the worship team come out here in a moment. And we're just going to sing a simple song. You know the one that says how we're all prone to wander? (laughs) My dad loved that song. My dad was that song. And we're going to raise our Ebenezer's. We're going to write it down. You can put it in your Bible. I mean, heck, you can write it in your Bible if you have one. You can put it on the card. You can take it home. You can make a plan. Write your plan on the card. Go and make a, buy a journal so your kids can hear what it's like while they're little as you learn about this God that you love. Or maybe you should go back in time and tell them about something that, that, that they've never heard of. Maybe they're too young to hear So write it for for their 18th birthday self. Or maybe it's to you. Maybe you need to remember where you are right now because you know that enemy's coming. And you you need to raise that Ebenezer in your story. Because you know, like me, you're also prone to wonder. We serve a God who loves you who is still very much writing your story and mine. And I hope you can try some stuff you're not good at, like my dad did, to bless not only his son, but a whole lot of other people he never met. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time and space. I thank you for the people here that you've brought to listen, if they're online or here in the room. I pray that they would take a few moments and just receive from you a highlight, a hallmark, something, Lord, that can remind them of the ways in which you have moved inside their story. I pray they would receive comfort from it. I thank you, Lord, for a father who took the time in the midst of his fear and insecurity to write a son a letter he wouldn't read for decades that would bless his life, bless his marriage, and bless the people he would share it with. Thank you, Lord, for the way you use us all to minister. We just create this space and time for you to interact with our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Come by fountain, every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Dreams of mercy, Never cease, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melody, sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain, fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Let's all stand together and sing this. 
highest praise, the highest praise, the loudest praise, the name above every name. One more time, the highest praise. He's a name above. above all else God I pray that that stays in our heart all week God that we put you and only you above all else we love you and thank you God for everything you do amen God bless you guys have a great great week we'll see you next Sunday